0: I do admit I'm a bit discombobulated introducing this session. Those of you who have heard me introduce sessions before, especially outside, they always start with an Irish joke about the weather. And this time, there is no Irish joke about the weather. The weather is perfect. Uh, it's not Irish weather. So I now don't have an introduction. Um, so look, thank you for coming, and a special welcome to our three deans, distinguished deans from uh, Harvard, who I'll introduce in a, in a second. Um, uh, this session will be more of a conversation than a presentation. So I will um, uh, ask our deans uh, some uh, questions, um, and then we'll get a conversation going. And then uh, towards the end of our session, there'll be an opportunity for questions from you. But how we'd like to do this is if you write your question on a card and send them to the outer edge of the planet, or the tent. Um, And then they'll be picked up and filtered uh, a little bit so that I don't have an army of questions, but a a goodly number. And then we'll pose those questions. So do keep in mind uh, the cards that you have with you. Uh, Please write your question. Send them to the the tent edge, and we'll pick them up in uh, half an hour's time. So I'm very delighted to w- welcome our three deans. Um, I'm fond of saying that when I became dean at Harvard Divinity School, the thing I was least looking forward to was the Harvard Council of Deans. Um, I had a strong image of um, the usual Harvard faculty egos, except on stilts, um, and that this would be the um, most unpleasant experience one could ever have in life. And, um, I'm very pleased to say it has been the most pleasant experience I've had uh, uh, during my time as dean. It's just been a tremendous amount of fun. And I love all of the, as a good uh, dean sibling, I love all the deans and the council of deans equally. Uh, But I love these three specially equally. Um, So I'll um, uh, just give a very brief introduction of our three distinguished guests. You'll have a longer bio in your program so we don't waste too much time and you get done with this humor. So Martha Minow is dean of the faculty at Harvard Law School and Morgan and Helen Chu dean and professor of law. She's an expert in human rights and advocacy for members of racial and religious minorities and for women, children, and persons with disabilities. She also writes and teaches about privatization, military justice, and ethnic and religious conflict. She serves as vice chair of the Legal Services Corporation, supporting civil legal assistance for low-income Americans, and is a member of the board of the MacArthur Foundation and other nonprofit organizations. And she's currently preparing a a book, I believe, on forgiveness. Nitin Naria is dean of the faculty at Harvard Business School and is a George F. Baker Professor of Administration. Building on input from faculty, students, staff, and alumni, he has identified five priorities for Harvard Business School during his deanship. Innovation in the school's educational programs, intellectual ambition that advances ideas with impact in practice, continued internationalization through building a global intellectual footprint, creation of a culture of inclusion, and fostering a culture of integration within HBS and across Harvard University that acts as a catalyst for entrepreneurship. His own academic interests center on human motivation, leadership, corporate transformation and accountability, and sustainable economic and human performance. Jim Ryan is dean of the faculty of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is a leading expert on law and education and has written extensively about the ways in which legal structures and educational opportunity, including such topics as school desegregation, school finance, school choice, standards, and testing. His most recent book, Wait What? and Life's Other Essential Questions, uh, is based on his 2016 commencement speech and was published earlier this month and has had an enormous impact, both the speech and the book. So uh, Jim is now the rock star of the deans. Um, um, uh, and he's authored articles on constitutional law and theory and argued before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, not argued with them, but, uh, argued, uh, <laughs> argued um, whatever lawyers do before the Supreme Court. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Let's give our deans a real round of applause. Okay, So I'm gonna move from here to there to get our conversation going and hopefully this mic will also work Um, Good So my first question for my three friends are um And I hope there's an answer to this uh, (laughs) Why do you do what you do and? And how does your school make a difference in the world, and what's your role in that mission? And, and another way of putting that is, I guess, what gets you up in the morning, apart from your alarm clocks. Um, so, what, what, what? what um, uh, why are you the deans of your schools,
1: and what? Yeah, Jim, do you want to start? I'd l- I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for including me, David. I'm I'm honored to be here, um, especially with Martha and Nathan. Um, so. I do what I do because I believe deeply in the power of education. And I feel really fortunate to be at an an institution um, with people who share that belief. And I believe that the mission of our school is to expand educational opportunities um, and to improve educational outcomes. And I view my role as dean to ensure that We're preparing our students for the various roles that they'll play in the field of education, from classroom teachers to principals to superintendents to those working in policy. And help create the conditions for success for our faculty, who produce research that identifies what works in education. Thank you. Martha?
2: Thank you, David, for this invitation. And anything you ask us to do, we'll do, (laughs) within reason. So, So we are living in a challenging time. Maybe everyone feels that their time is challenging, but it feels that way to me particularly. And I believe that not everyone is capable of loving one another, as admirable as that is as an aspiration, and law is the tool that we have to help to build societies where people who actually don't like each other can actually live together. I also believe that law is a vehicle for bringing about change. Um, And so the rule of law is uh, actually a pretty precious and uh, fragile uh, resource for human beings. And I believe that we are in the business of searching the world for talented leaders who believe in the possibility of words as a way to persuade and to pursue justice. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Nitin? (laughs) David, uh, thank you for bringing us here. And uh, congratulations to everybody on the 200th anniversary of the Harvard Divinity School. Uh, As a business school dean, I'm, as you know, always grateful when I'm invited to the Divinity School, because. People often wonder in my province whether we'll ever have a ticket to heaven. And uh, <laughs> this, is, this is my ticket, so here I am. <laughs> we took a picture of the four deans. I said, I'm going to have that very close to my heart. If I ever get stopped at the pearly gates, I can show them here I was. Uh, so look, you know, I, uh, I grew up in India, and it's a poor country. And so I have seen uh, how much economic self-determination matters in people's lives. Uh, People, of course, care about the health. They care about law. They care about personal safety. But if you think about the greatest source of human dignity that you could have, self-reliance and the ability to feel that you have economic determination over your own life is really important. I saw that um, uh, through businesses that I visited. My father was, uh, ran an electric, com- an electric utility company. So he went to villages that had no electricity, and their company brought power to those villages. I got the opportunity to see what happened, how these villages got transformed by the power of business, the jobs that got created as a result of the jobs, hospitals that got created, schools that got created. So very early on in my life, I had this deep belief that business was, could be a force for good, that while it was certainly not uh, also had as any very powerful force the opportunity to do harm. At its core, it was one of the most important ways of creating prosperity and economic self-determination for so many people around the world. So we live in a society in which uh, there will be 9 billion people or 10 billion people roughly in the world by 2050. As of today, there's at most 2 billion people in the world who feel included in this circle of economic self-determination. That's 7 billion people more, and the ones who have it always want more Mm -hmm. as well. Mm So I wake up every day deeply inspired by the mission of Harvard Business School, which is to educate leaders who will make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. While many institutions have to play a role in creating this, in expanding this zone of economic self-determination, I think business is one of the most powerful instruments of doing that. So I think it's a great calling to be a business person who can go out and create prosperity and economic self-determination for millions of people Mm -hmm. around the world. And the challenge is very large, and so we need as many leaders as we can, who could possibly contribute to this mission.
0: Yeah. So what I hear in these uh, three answers is um, a a really wonderful um, commitment to um, expanding opportunity, whether it's prosperity generated by economic growth, or whether it's educational opportunity for uh, all people, or whether it's bringing the protections of the law to bear on uh, people who otherwise would be victims of cruel and unusual punishments. Um, How then would you think, I mean, uh, um, is there some kind of tension uh, um, in having those aspirations and starting from a place of privilege like Harvard? Or, um, and maybe to sharpen that question a little bit, do you see that one Harvard or the collective university adds something extra? To the aspirations that you have for your schools, does it is it easier or harder to fulfil your aspirations for your school by being part of this bigger university city? So um, um, maybe uh, pick up one or one or other of those questions. Sure. um, Martha, do you want to have a go at that?
2: Well, I'm watching with great interest how you're observing your 200th because ours starts in June. The law school follows the divinity school. And it actually was an innovation to have a law school affiliated with a university. Previously in the United States, people became lawyers by apprenticing themselves to a lawyer. To become part of a university is to have the radical view that the study of law is actually related to the humanities, to the sciences, to the entire scope of human knowledge. And that is a tension that persists to this day. Because we are in the business of developing practicing lawyers who are eager to actually put aside what they learned in college and learn the real thing. How do you be a lawyer? And we are asking them actually to continue the journey of critical questioning. Right.
3: Yeah. Thank you. And we, of course, you know, are uh, in many ways are almost 100 years younger than the law school. And uh, the Harvard Business School is famously known for the case method. But the reality is that we actually borrowed it from the law school. So in many ways, we have been deeply indebted to being a part of this university Mm -hmm. in terms of getting some of our most cherished traditions from other parts of the university. And I do think that what Martha says is right. One of the great privileges of being in a university is that you can create a more holistic education for your students. So we're not a trade school. By virtue of being a horror business school in a university, we end up being a place that teaches people economics, we teach people law, we can teach things that come from other parts of the university. Of course, we teach them about business as well. But we're trying to create almost a liberal arts education for business. So when people ask me what's the real promise of uh, Harvard Business School education, we believe in general management. Mm -hmm. And what is general management? Mm -hmm. It's It's a person who has a holistic understanding of the role of business in society, of the ways in which they can exercise leadership in society. And that's not just the technical details of accounting or the technical details of finance. It's a much broader perspective that you need to have. And I don't think we would have ever developed that perspective
0: yeah. had
3: we not been a part of a great university. So I think the importance of being a part of Harvard, and the more we become one Harvard, uh, the more each of our schools will actually benefit from being a part of this university.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't agree more about the benefits of being a part of a university, both for our students and our faculty. I mean, education touches um, a number of subjects taught across the university um, and is relevant to a number of interests among our students. And there are a number of faculty all across the university that are studying education from different perspectives. Um, And it's one of the most attractive things to our students and, and to our faculty. But I want to say a word about the first question, about the question of privilege, because this is something that I think about a lot and our students do as well. And I always tell our students at orientation, is um, most of our students are master's students and we only have a year. So I tell them at the very first day that they all came from different places and some of them had more difficult journeys to arrive at Harvard than others. But they are going to leave here privileged in a way that they don't yet fully appreciate but that they need to begin thinking about now. That Harvard will open a lot of doors but it will also cause a fair bit of distrust Mm -hmm. in some of the communities in which our students are hoping to serve. Mm -hmm. And that they should worry less about the existence of privilege and worry more about how they're going to put it to good use.
2: I just, on the way over here, I was talking with one of my students who came from the country of Georgia. And she said it was such an extraordinary experience to be admitted to Harvard from her country, one of the very first from her country ever to come to, to Harvard. And so she felt she was an ambassador from Georgia. And she looked at me. And she said, now I'm an ambassador from Harvard to Georgia. Mm. Uh, how do I do this? And I said, remember who you are? Mm. And try to be humble.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, um, uh, you know, uh, reflecting on the positive of what gets you up in the morning and, and the benefits of being at a place like Harvard. What would you say are your biggest frustrations um, in reflecting on um, uh, uh, being at Harvard or in the jobs that we occupy and, within reason, we don't want we, we to spend hours on this? But <laughs> <laughs>
1: and where's the liquor? <laughs> well, Maybe you should
0: start, David. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, one might be not receiving <laughs> advice from your fellow deans over lunch to give up at lunchtime. But, um, yeah, but are there, I mean, genuinely, do you think that there are things that you would love to see um, uh, could be achieved better, or the uh, things that you struggle with, that, you, um, uh, that if some tweak could be made to a system, or to a structure, or to an educational philosophy, or to a political climate, that would um, give you a following wind towards achieving the very noble objectives you've uh, uh, elucidated? Or are most of the frustrations outside our control altogether?
3: I think that the general anxiety that we have in society that people are less and less willing to have a true dialogue with each other and seem more determined to just bring evidence that reinforces their beliefs as opposed to listening to others who might have different views and finding common ground you would think that universities would be a natural place where we would be more able to do that what worries me right now is that it feels that what's happening in the world is actually entering universities as well we we find people almost looking for ways to be disagreeable with each other, rather than trying to find ways of having Mm -hmm. spirited dialogues, spirited discussions. And that's uh, whether it's the faculty or the students. So I I hope we can keep finding ways to make sure that these are the spaces where we should prepare people to go back into the world and be the kinds of citizens who are willing to listen to evidence. Mm who are willing to listen to each other, who are capable of having, you know, the case method at Harvard Business School was grounded on the view that with the same 16 pages that are given or 12 pages that are given to people, 90 people can come to class and see the thing differently and can learn from each other. If all you do is listen to another person's view and say that's stupid and my view is right, yeah. you, re- you learn very little. So we need to make sure that we're creating uh, a culture which is at the heart of great academic institutions that is about dialogue, disagreement, a willingness to do that in a way that's open-minded, to actually know what evidence would persuade you to accept someone else's point of view. And I hope that we can somehow not get so infected by the world in which we live right now that we lose that. Because in some ways, if there is a hope to turn that around the world, we have to create the next generation of people who can do that as well. And that worries me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I I agree with that. And I think a related phenomenon, again, it's the world coming inside the university, is the digital revolution has great resources. But one of the real costs is people aren't listening. People are multitasking. And people think that they're listening while they're multitasking, and that's the worst of all worlds. I think that there's a real danger of losing what's very special about being a face-to-face community. People are in a classroom, fearful that what they're saying is going to end up on a blog somewhere with their name attached. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to actually cultivate what it takes to be quietly in the presence of others and not simultaneously projecting your image around the world, I, I feel a special uh, challenge about that right yeah.
1: now. Yeah, yeah. I guess I... I think a lot about, I don't know that it rises to the level of a full-blown anxiety, but I think a lot about are we doing all that we can to prepare our students for the world um, and the fast-changing world of education. Part of that is exactly what Nithin is talking about, um, preparing our students to engage in productive conversations with those with whom they might not agree um, and teaching them how to disagree without being disagreeable um, and how to search for consensus. Um, and that's actually been a goal of ours this year, and one of the programs that we started is what we're calling um, the 3D program, which is, stands for Dinners, Dilemmas, and Debates. And faculty hosts small groups of students at their homes to talk about ethical dilemmas. Part of the point of it is to provide a space for students to disagree with one another. It's difficult to talk about a dilemma and all agree on the proper approach to it and that is done in part because I was sensing the same thing that that Nithin is sensing is that we're too often I think in a university a part of an echo chamber rather than encountering ideas um, with which we disagree and people who hold them Mm -hmm. but I also worry about making sure that we're preparing our students for the fast-changing world of education Um, Martha talked about um, digital technology that's just one of the enormous Um, changes in education and thinking about how we prepare our students not just for the education that exists in schools today, but the education changes that we know are on the horizon. Mm -hmm.
0: So one thing I've noticed a little bit um, in in our school um, is that we take students, as I'm sure is, is true here, from almost every state in the Union and many countries outside We take people in from places that are um, uh, possibly more conservative, religiously, politically. Um, Then they spend two or three years with us. And we mostly position them in the coastal places, again, in, in metropolitan centers in the East Coast or the West Coast. So it's almost like we act as a little bit of a vacuum cleaner. You know, we suck in talent and then we export it um, uh, to uh, centers that already have a lot of talent. So I guess what I'm thinking, and you know, Jim, you gave some really great practical ideas about the problem that Nitin diagnosed, about how do we actually encourage a better discourse within, uh, on our campus, but also outside our campus. And um, it sounds like your dinner conversations with students is a great way of doing that and a more relaxed atmosphere. Have you found other things that have worked in this very polarizing climate that we're in that can, um, uh, that can help build these conversations in the nation that we care about? So, we're
3: trying something. We don't know whether. It... So, we invited a, a, a wonderful author who's, if you haven't read her book, you should. It's Arlie Hochschild. She's written a book called Strangers in Our Own Country. It's a remarkable book where someone who, as she says, you know, I'm blue, blue, blue. I'm from California. I'm from the University of California at Berkeley. And I'm a sociologist, so I can't get any more blue than that. Uh, so I decided to go out and study red, red, red. And so she went to uh, Louis- you know, she went to the South. She went to Louisiana. And she went to a, a county in Louisiana, Crystal Lake, which she, she didn't know this when she started studying it, which was four years ago, but, but which voted 91% Trump. So it's a as conservative a, a group that she could find. And she said, I really wanted to climb this empathy wall to understand. Who these people were, because sitting in Berkeley, I almost imagined that they, you know, wore horns every day and mm-hmm. uh, were out there ready to destroy the world. And she says, you know, you re- at the first thing you discover is that these are wonderful people. You can sit down and have tea and coffee with them, and then you understand their world in a in a deep and important way. So we have to, I think, find more ways of getting to places where the people we tend to other people. So we're trying to take a group of our faculty to a place called the Golden Triangle, which ends up being a very vibrant economic area that has been done in the last three years. One of the poorest districts in Mississippi has been converted into a vibrant economic zone. So we're going to take 10 of our faculty members to go out and spend three days in in Mississippi so that none of us have had the opportunity to understand how do communities like that transform themselves. We've studied how The kinds of companies that we are most excited about, Google and Facebook and other things, uh, are doing business. But we've never really taken the time to deeply understand what are the challenges in communities like that? How does economic redevelopment occur that way? So my hope is to rekindle in our own faculty first Mm -hmm. the imagination that things that are happening in the middle of our country are actually interesting. They're worthy of our own intellectual interest. Yeah. We should be writing and thinking about what goes on there, and then through that, bring our students in some ways engaged in those places in the world as well.
2: So we find this is, of course, a big question. And to say to someone who's the first in the family to go to college, why don't you not go to New York? Why don't you go back home? It's not exactly to respect <laughs> their aspirations and their family's desires. One of the things that we, we do do at the law school, and I know that many at other parts of the university do as well, is we really encourage service.
0: Yeah. So
2: it is a remarkable uh, experience for people who disagree about a lot of other things to be working side by side. In the Mississippi Delta, where we have a clinical project where people represent uh, individuals who are still recovering from natural disasters and economic disasters, we have a requirement of. Uh, pro bono work, public service work. That's 50 hours before graduation. The average last year was 650. Um, 29 clinics, 11 practice organizations. Whatever people's own interests are, there's, there are people in need. Uh, and to actually put aside your worries about your own jobs and your own student loans to actually work on behalf of someone who is living on much less than you are, uh, is uh, I think puts it in perspective and also gives people in the, in the student body a chance to learn from each other about these very real experiences?
1: So I would say for us it comes up in two ways. Um, in the context of education, one topic that is often um, given a nod to but not addressed nearly enough are, are rural schools, um, which face a, a lot of the challenges that urban schools do, but they're, they're a very different context. Um, often a politically different context. Um, And so we've been in conversations about how can we bring more attention to rural schools and introduce our students more to to, um, the challenges that rural schools face and the opportunities that rural schools face. It's difficult for us because of our location to work closely with rural schools, um, but we're thinking about how we can encourage our students to spend time there and faculty to pay closer attention. The second issue is, is picking up on the theme of the 3D program, is working with faculty to create a classroom environment where students feel free to disagree with one another, or to voice unpopular opinions. I mean, education debates um, are some of the most strident um, in in our public discourse, and people's um, feelings are are very strong, and often the debates shed um, more heat than light. And, A number of our faculty are working on ways to encourage students to actually disagree with one another in class and disagree with a a faculty member. Some of this is importing the um, case study method from the law school and the business school. Um, some of it is setting the right tone for the class. I taught a class last fall where we focused on uh, school desegregation and school finance cases. And I, had, I divided the class up in half every week, and they were assigned to argue one side or the other. And I told them that part of the reason to do this was to force them to articulate an argument with which they might not agree. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they'll come to appreciate and respect that argument more than they might otherwise. They may still disagree with it, but they'll be much yeah. more informed about yeah. it. Yeah.
0: yeah, thank you.
1: So I'm going to change the, um,
0: the, the topic a little bit now. I mean, you uh, foolishly agreed to come to Divinity School, um, and this is part of the ticket. That um, <laughs> the, um... any price. <laughs> so, uh, how does religion affect each of your professions in, in scholarship and in practice? I mean, how would you think about that question? I mean, does it have any impact at all in that kind of generic sense, or uh, how
3: would you parse out that question? So. <laughs> Not ago, Amir, so in many ways, uh, the relationship between capitalism and religion has been quite strong. right? So if you think about Max Weber, he talks about capitalism and the Protestant ethic. So there's been a deep intellectual connection that uh, capitalism arose out of uh, certain religious groups that had a view of how to create work and how that business was itself a way to do something that was in the service of humanity. And, uh, in service of god so it, it's not that it was uh, so it's the value of doing it came from a religious orientation we've seen this repeatedly in society thereafter right so the quakers in this country built some of the greatest companies including things like Procter and gamble that live until today or johnson and johnson and these are companies that grew out of people who were founders who were deeply inspired by a religious uh, The work that they thought that they were doing in building these companies was as much a religious calling as anything else. So religion has, of course, business has over time become much more secular. And we have lost uh, increasingly this uh, very explicit connection to religion. Mm -hmm. But I am, in meeting individuals, even though they would never talk about it publicly, which is interesting to me, that uh, religion has disappeared from the public discourse about business. But in the private life of business people and where they find inspiration from and where they find meaning for what they do, I am quite struck by how much I will still meet people who find meaning in what they do and purpose in what they do from their religious roots. So it is an mm. interesting thing that in a since Weber and a very explicit discussion of the role of religion in the intellectual discussions of uh, capitalism and business, it's completely disappeared. It would be very hard to find today scholarship that takes that, that point of view. But, so it's almost as if it retreated from the public space into the private space. Hmm. But I don't think that one should underestimate the important role that religion continues to play in the life of business leaders. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: So religion is present at the Harvard Law School before every exam.
0: <laughs>
2: we, for, for a law school to be situated in the United States, the temptation is to think there's only one legal system. And we've worked really hard to locate the United States and the 50 states inside of many legal traditions. And those include Islamic legal studies, Jewish legal studies, Christian legal studies, Hindu legal studies, and Buddhist legal studies. I can go on. We recently held a Freedom Seder organized by students with I think it was 30 student groups that cooperated in putting on the Seder, each one adding a new symbolic uh, dimension to the Seder plate and telling the story of their people. Um, So our students come with diverse backgrounds, and they're curious about how their background does and does not relate to others. We do view religion as a subject of study, an object of study, and a comparative legal tradition is a big part of our education. But frankly, right now, I do think that conflict about religion is uh, an enormously important subject at uh, at the Mm -hmm. law school and in American law Mm -hmm. and in my own research. I gave a lecture this fall at the medical school on how should conflicts between religion and medicine be resolved, which tend to come to the legal community, as if we have an answer, which we do not. Mm Um, and indeed, we may make it worse by imagining that there's an all or nothing, that either the religious view prevails or the medical view prevails. Um, the issue of what role should the religious belief of a private company have uh, in claiming exemptions, for example, under the Affordable Care Act. These are very live issues. They occupy um, uh, classroom work and scholarly work. Um, and it, concerns, you know, the larger issue that I mentioned right when you began, David. We live in a world in which there's conflict and disagreement and people don't all love each other. And the law is often the way that people try to work out how to work with each other. How do you do that when the law itself is at risk of not being neutral? Because it can't be neutral. Mm-hmm. That's a constant issue mm-hmm. for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So as you know, the intersection of religion and education is long standing in this country and around the globe and so it is a ripe topic for for scholarship among our faculty um, and myself included. I've been fascinated by the role of religion and education um, my entire professional life um, and became fascinated with the rise of Christian academies in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. The, role, the proper role of education, the proper role of religion in education and the relationship between education as represented by the state and religion is only becoming more important given the current administration's um, uh, interest in expanding school choice, including choice among religious schools. So this is a topic that um, has received a decent amount of attention and I think will receive even more. In terms of practice, A small um, fraction of our students um, leave to teach or lead independent schools, a number of them religiously affiliated. We have a faculty member who's reaching out to pull together um, religious leaders and education leaders from communities. And I think this is a really promising Mm -hmm. idea because It's pretty obvious that for schools to succeed, there needs to be both family engagement and community engagement. And community engagement has often left out religious leaders from the conversation, I think out of a fear of um, intermingling church and state, which um, is not required by the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits religious leaders and education leaders from sitting down to discuss their mutual interests and the development of youth um, in their communities. And so I think this is a really promising a promising approach. Yeah. Do you think it would be um, really advantageous
0: for the students in your respective schools to be more religiously literate than they are? Um, or, or, do you, or do you think, you know, Martha you were saying that at the moment so much around religious discourse is about conflict or even certainly in the schools as well? Um, or even, you know, a, a, a capitalism versus a kind of Liberal progressive agenda that sees capitalism or, or generation of prosperity as a bad thing, or so. I mean, are there ways in which you think that there would be a real benefit to um, greater uh, amount of religious literacy, or do you think this is something you know? As some colleagues at Harvard might think that this is a time to move away from religious discourses in search of more um, uh, secular and, therefore, potentially you know, more unifying.
1: Uh, uh, discourses? I I actually think it's really important for students to be more religiously literate if they're going into the field of education because if you think about a teacher going into a classroom there are going to be a number of religions represented in that classroom Mm -hmm. and the ability to prevent conflict or to resolve conflict I think will be related to the extent to which the teacher is familiar with different religious traditions. Martha's right that we are in a time of religious conflict um, and that 's showing up in classrooms every single day, and if teachers don't understand at least the basics of different religious traditions, I think they're going to have a more difficult time navigating those conflicts
3: right. Right. I, I, I agree I think that in fact, if anything uh, you know, perhaps uh, there's people who argued that the 20th century the great tension in the world was between capitalism and communism, and, and by the end of the 20th century, that tension dissipated and it looked like, okay, this was one model that was better. Uh, I actually think that we have a, in the 21st century, religion has become one of the real great divides that separates the world. And mm. uh, if we don't understand uh, people whom we tend to other, you know, certainly one can think of Islam today as being a, a great place, which is almost as if, uh, you know, Winston Churchill used to describe that the world is separated by an iron curtain, I sometimes wonder whether the world is now separated by a black veil. Mm -hmm. Uh, That people who live on the other side of the veil don't understand us, and we don't understand them, and it all feels very mysterious and uh, different. And it's so easy then to imagine that everybody's evil on each side. And uh, if we don't start to understand each other better across religions and pretend that everybody's going to be secular as we are, because that's the rightiest place to be. We'll just miss out on on understanding what's going on in the world right now. And not just in the world outside us, but it's increasingly, of course, through migration and immigration and refugee crises and things like that, entering our own worlds too. And you can see how different countries are struggling with different models. Is the right model France? Is the right model Germany? Is the right model the United States? Is the right model, uh, you know, there's so many different places where we're running into different ways in which people are struggling with these things. I think the vast majority of our students, because it's so heated and because it's so hard, would rather not engage. It's almost safer to say, let me not go there, because if I go there, it just creates an internal conflict or an external conflict. But I just think that that's irresponsible. We must find a way to have these conversations in a way that allows us to understand better how people who are not like us religiously think. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. So some time ago, the Divinity School hosted a panel discussion with Jack Rawls Cornell West and me. Which one of these things is not like the other? You know, and I was a young assistant professor and I was uh, very honored to be there and very taken of course with John Rawls's view that we could come up with a public discourse overlapping consensus where we could speak the same language and keep our private personal religious views out as I came to know him over time, I learned for him that was very personally a goal of his political philosophy. I'm less and less confident that that goal is uh, within reach, not to mention, is it even desirable? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why my colleagues' discussions about literacy uh, in terms of religion, I think, is so terribly important. I I guess I would just add to it this. I think in a time of globalization, Sense of being unrooted, a sense of a challenge to any meaning, is profound
0: mm-hmm.
2: for people in all walks of life. And I think that people who, in the you know, twenty, thirty years ago, said we're going to see the decline of religion, they didn't understand that actually this is a time of growing religiosity, growing intensity of religious affiliation, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to understand how. That operates, uh, even for people within a religion. I'm in a religious tradition. I'm Jewish. And to watch the changes of my own tradition in this moment and to understand how history affects belief, I think that we all need to pay attention to this. Yeah,
0: Yeah, thank you. So in in light of that, I'm going to ask you to act out your um, uh, deepest fantasies now about um, uh, that you could be dean of the divinity school. Instead of instead of the, uh, instead, of the um, <laughs> I, 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 instead of being you know approached by Drew for a you know another school that um, just happened to have a decanal vacancy. <laughs> um, um, so, um, uh, in the light of of of, of 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 what we've discussed, I mean, what would you um, what would you look to from the divinity school a divinity school at a great university a great research university like Harvard as it gets into its third century. Or um, what, what, what can we do better? What do you most want from us? What, what, how do you see us in the university? And, and, and what um, uh, role could we play even more constructively going forward? Um, uh, and the prize for a really excellent answer here is to become the <laughs> 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 That should sharpen the competition. (laughs) 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 Or or it
1: couldn't do silence. (laughs) I'm hearing the silence.
3: (laughs) um, I think in some ways it feels to me that the answer to that is connected to this last question that you asked us, which is, where would the capacity to have these conversations emerge from? And where where could we learn, how can you have productive conversations with people who come from different religious traditions, can talk about religion in a way that doesn't cause them to become even more retreat into themselves, how might we learn how to do that? So for example, you know, we learn fr- by the case method that it's a way in which different people who might have disagreements, it provides a very powerful and productive pedagogical device by which some, you know, people can reasonably disagree and not come to blows with each other. It would be nice to know what are the ways in which we might all of us who wrestle with this but won't be experts in yeah. knowing how to navigate this conversation. What could the Divinity School do by itself that enables a this dialogue to occur across religious traditions in a way that is productive? Right. And if you know how to do that well, then how can you help the rest of us in our own settings learn how to do it better? That to me would be, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. because I don't think these problems for the next 50 years are getting any smaller. Yeah, yeah. So if you think about. I mean, 100 years is a, is a long time to think about. But at least it feels to me that the world is coming to a place where the challenges of the world come more into the sweet spot of the Divinity School. And to the extent that you can learn how to navigate that, yeah. on all of our behalfs, we would all benefit yeah. uh, from what the Divinity School might do.
0: Yeah, thank you. Mm.
3: I think you're in danger of becoming a community. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, I'm always looking for my ticket to heaven.
0: <laughs>
2: when the Supreme Court of the United States decided a case in which it actually eliminated accommodation for religion, as it had previously been done, and instead said, if there's a neutral rule then there's no need to accommodate individuals whose religious beliefs come against it. The Divinity School hosted a meeting. I came to that meeting. And there were people from many, many traditions who had never been in the same room together, who shared one view, which is this was wrong. And that led to you know, one of the many, many meetings around the country that led to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that statute you know, passed by Congress almost unanimously. We are now living in a moment when the interpretation of that statute is of great challenge. Because it turns out, when you adopt by statute, rather than case law, the idea of accommodation, it can be pretty crude. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be helpful for the Divinity School to host another meeting.
0: Right, Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I would say Martha's in the lead, judging by the applause. So <laughs> be careful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm reluctant for a number of reasons to give you advice.
0: Um,
1: I don't really feel like I'm in any kind of position, and, and I came here because you promised you were going to give us advice. About <laughs> sure. um, I think I would echo a bit of what um, Nithin was saying. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and and um, a theme of this conversation. And I think that you have a remarkable opportunity to show what is common across many religious faiths. You certainly know much more about this topic than I do. But I have a strong sense that there are strong areas of agreement and commonality about some deep and fundamental issues, the environment, peace, yeah, yeah. Um, caring for the disadvantaged and the elderly. Right. And if you can show the way. Past the conflicts that occupy so much of our attention, so much of our discourse, and illuminate, which I know is one of your um, one of your guiding principles, illuminate the areas of consensus and the mm-hmm. areas of commonality and the areas of working toward a greater purpose mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. rather than fighting for Supremacy. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be not just a service to the university, but a service to this country and, and to the world, yeah, honestly.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. one example of that is just a, you know, soon after I became dean, we hosted a conversation here among some uh, leaders of, uh, from the evangelical tradition, who, some of whom might not have been enthusiastic about the idea of climate change, but who nevertheless had a very high ideal of creation care. Um, uh, and and brought some of those people into conversation with people who did have a strong view of climate change and the damage it was doing, but who could unite over the idea of care for the creation, thinking about it strategically and so on. So I think there are many examples like that where um, the hostilities, because of the way they're framed and the way that the insults are traded, uh, really just push people apart, make that kind of conversation impossible. Uh, whereas I, I do think, I mean, obviously not in everything there will be areas where there's just frank, honest disagreement. But I think there are many other areas where some of these disagreements can be softened a little bit in the interest of some greater objective. Um, so I'm going to finish before um, uh, you know, gathering questions from uh, the audience. And um, there's a, a kind of um, best-selling author who's um, written this book on questions um, uh, and the final question on the uh, is uh, what really matters um, and I was just wondering you know how you would begin to answer that question uh, for yourselves and, and maybe you know take it whatever way either you know give it a personal twist but or, or, or a professional you know decanal representative of school twist. What really matters, as you um, uh, uh, to you, in, in, uh, uh, so either in your professional lives, or or, or more deeply, uh, as you think about your roles here. Maybe start with you, Jim, since you're a kind of expert on this. Or
1: <laughs> so I'm the one who asks the questions. In that book. <laughs> so I'll answer it from the perspective of being a dean, and. And this, is, this ties to my personal life as well, I suppose. Um, what truly matters to me is not to lose sight of the purpose for which our school exists. And the purpose that I see as motivating my role as dean. And that's to serve others. It's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day Um, details of being the dean or the day-to-day life of being a faculty member or a student. Um, But if you have decided to go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, you have decided, in effect, to dedicate your life to service Mm -hmm. in the form of serving others through education. I think that's an incredibly noble purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all better off. And we're all at our best selves Mm -hmm. when we remember that's why we're all here. Mm And I try to remind myself that that's why I'm there. Yeah. Thank you. Great answer. Martha, you want to have a stab
0: well, at
2: Well, I guess I will respond to it as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was pregnant and realized that every single person on earth, some woman had gone through that experience for them.
1: <laughs>
2: and that was the beginning of uh, recognition that you know, every single person, somebody loved them somewhere, sometime. And what does it take to look at every person, even someone you're mad at, mm. through that lens? Mm. And what does it take to create the context in which you know, there's that capacity for each person now? Um, and I, I think that we are very much encouraged to think about ourselves and our careers and our successes and finding ways to support this sense of the privilege of being alive and what it is to you know, bear witness to the privilege of other people's lives. That's something that I try to think about every day. And you know, one of the challenges of the kind of job that we have is that we're kind of the clergy for a small community. And you know, we know the sadnesses. We know who's ill. We know who's lost a family member. And uh, to try to find the ways to make a community that holds with some gentleness all of the people in it as we go through the challenges of our lives.
3: Thank you. So for me, I have always been deeply moved by the mission of Harvard Business School from the first day I joined the school. It's a very simple mission. It says to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. And for me, every day, just that phrase, make a difference in the world, is a useful phrase. And it can sound very lofty, and you know sometimes you can say, "Oh my God, make a difference in the world." Do I have to be some leader with a capital L in order to do that? But there's so many opportunities to do it every day. You can go back. I, I go back every day and uh, always do a little mental accounting: Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I bring despair to someone? How many ways did I have an opportunity to? Did I say hello to my daughters in a way that was really meaningful, or did I just skip past them? So there are so many ways in which we can do it. Every day in our daily lives and the daily ways in which we live with other people, you can do it in other bigger and larger ways. And so it's a circle that can keep expanding. But as long as you have that sense that you do make a difference in the lives of others, and you can make a positive difference or a negative difference, you always have the opportunity of doing both. And to the extent that the leisure in the end is that you make more positive difference than not, then Mm -hmm. you would have lived a good life. So Mm -hmm. uh, I find that mission useful in the small. I find that mission useful in the medium and in the large. it ends up being a very powerful way to live my personal life as well as think about what I'm doing on behalf of our business school and what I hope our students, in turn, uh, would be doing on behalf of their own families, their own communities, mm-hmm. and, and the world at large. Mm-hmm.
2: I think you have the ticket.
3: Uh, <laughs> thank you. He's the one who can give it, though. <laughs> Thanks, Paul.
0: So. Um... So uh, the, the era of soft questions is over. <laughs> <laughs> We're now in a hard, uh, uh, so thank you for these questions. I'll um, um, uh, uh, pose them to our, those are great answers, actually, on, the, um, on what really matters, so thank you so much. Um, you can see why being on the Council of Deans is really fun. Uh, so, the, um, so how does HDS add value to your schools, um, um, and what kind of content from HDS would you like to see more of? I guess we've answered that a little bit, but um, um, do you have any, anything, um, You know, how, how you think we add value to it? Uh, yeah.
2: Well, I'll say just very simply, the students and the faculty participate in discussions that affect my students and my faculty in very, very important and enriching ways. Um, and, you know, the most obvious are the students who are doing, pursuing a joint degree, but many are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have students from HDS at the law school and vice versa, and, you know, I'm working on a book on forgiveness. And I have a very strong interest in loan forgiveness and debt forgiveness. And to be able to work with students who actually know something about <laughs> that is, uh, mm-hmm. and, and what are the religious traditions, what are the resources? that we could maybe summon up as we deal with a very practical problem in the lives of people right now. It's incredibly um, helpful.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say exactly the same thing as Martha. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ditto. Yeah.
0: So here's a trickier one. Um, uh, what is the role of ethics in your schools? And, and, and secondly, do you provide spaces in your curriculum where students can consider faith-based, that is, from different religious traditions, perspectives on the ethics of education, business, or law. So, really, it's a question around the role of um, uh, uh, ethics in your curriculum and um, and what role, if any, religion plays in considering how that uh, ethical curriculum is constructed.
3: So, I mean, ethics permeates our curriculum. We have required courses that encourage people to think uh, about the ethical dilemmas that will be a part of all of their lives in in business. Uh, I had the great privilege of being involved in creating that course. Uh, It was one of the highlights of my academic life at Harvard Business School, was to be involved in creating a core called Leadership and Corporate Accountability, which tried to make ethics a required part of our first year curriculum, which it now is. Uh, I must confess, though, that this is the part that I was lamenting, that even though Religion has always played an important role in, in business. It is, seems somehow less a opportunity to talk about where these values and ethical principles might come about explicitly. It's almost as if we feel compelled to have that conversation in very secular terms, yeah. or in very analytical terms, but not uh, in the same ways. I have tried a couple of times to see if we could encourage our students to have the conversation in which values or ethics that are grounded in in a religious set of beliefs or religious traditions could be introduced into the conversation. But it's been hard, to be honest, to bring that into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: We, too, have required and uh, courses that deal with ethics and also hope to have a kind of pervasive approach. But I think that the religious contributions to ethical discussions really are um, is is deepest in the very vibrant organizations on campus. So Christian Legal Fellowship. Uh, you know, many many religions have student organizations. And what's been moving to me to see in recent years is their collaboration around topics where they hold conferences on subjects like what is it to be a religious professional. Um, and I think that. That's been more effective in creating space than in the classroom, where people are being graded and judged.
3: Right. And we find the same things. In fact, our student organizations have turned out to be the most powerful way in which this. And they're now connecting with each other across the university. So the nice thing is that they're no longer people who are just isolated in each of our schools. We found our groups connecting with people here, groups connecting with people at both of your schools. So I think it's been really striking that the students are finding their own ways of having these conversations outside of the classroom in very productive ways. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Everything yeah, yeah, at Harvard yeah. doesn't have to happen in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. We, we do remember one of the reasons why we've created a residential community is to create opportunities for people to do things that could be better done uh, outside of the classroom. And uh, so that a—it's actually an encouraging sign that more of that conversations are occurring, and they're occurring outside the classroom.
1: And yeah, it's—it's very similar at the at school. And there are a number of courses on um, ethics related to education, um, and there are a number of. Um, Efforts outside of the classroom to focus on ethics. There's a group on um, civic and moral engagement that involves both faculty and students. Uh, but I would I would say um, it is a secularized version. The discussion. There is not much discussion about the origins of particular ethical values or their consistency with particular religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's
0: a um, Do you think that's a weakness? Or I mean, are, I think are are you saying that that these ethical discussions, if they do have uh, a strong religious foundations, are almost better worked out outside the curriculum? Or, or, do, you, uh, or do you think there's a case to be made for um,
3: paying greater attention to that in the curriculum? or How would you think about that? Or, so I think we don't have the competence to know how to do that right now. So that's one of the things that I was saying, that yeah. as you think about what the Divinity School might do, if you could help us mm-hmm. figure out how to do that. So when we talk about fairness, yeah. So for example, right? I mean, that's an important ethical principle. And you say, we, we're not going to not have a discussion at Harvard Business School in which people say, well, let's think about claims of fairness. And in, in what ways is this decision fair? Who will feel it's unfair? What, what does that mean? Now, fairness is presented as an utterly secular idea, whereas yeah. the reality is that hmm. notions of fairness have very different mm-hmm. interpretations, very different mm-hmm. imaginations, and different religions. But we don't know how to. Yeah unearth that, discuss that, have a conversation about it that's productive. So we tend to retreat into trying to find these universal ethical principles uh, that you can talk about without having to uncover or unearth or even try and understand the differences that different religious traditions might have on the same word, where there is some apparently secular understanding of it. But actually, there may be underneath it, deeper and more different meanings. So I, I do think that there is as you say, David, probably value in trying to get more nuance and richness into these secular discussions that are informed by different religious yeah, insights. Yeah. But I'll be honest that no one of our faculty members would know how to do that today. Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't know how to have that conversation in a way that was productive. Yeah, yeah. And so we tend to have the conversation in a yeah. way that ends up being very secular, very scientific, very analytical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Because what you know, when we look at the foundation documents of our school in 1816, um, one interpretation of the founding of the divinity school—and this happened right across the United States a little bit later—is the separation of theology and religion from the main university, if we put it that way, in a separate place where. It's done as a vocational or professional training. Um, and although there's something called religious studies back in universities, um, um, uh, so one, one interpretation of what you've uh, just said is that um, not having any kind of uh, or, or, you know, faculty or programs or curriculum that can deal with these issues is part of a structural reality of how the American universities unfolded. So that we, in our silos, we deal with these things, um, but um, collectively, the connections are not strong enough. And of course, this is um, uh, at somewhere like Harvard, where there's a spatial separation between the schools, um, as well as a disciplinary separation. Are there things that you think we can do better to, I know uh, President Fowles, who we all report to, Um, uh, you know, has this one Harvard vision of how collectively we can be better than we are individually. But is this an area we can do better? And and if so, what would doing better look like? Um,
2: um, To get very practical, it's about schedule. It's very hard for people to actually take classes across the university because the schedules are different. And the January term, I think, is now this great opportunity where the whole school's on the January schedule. I think we should have many more occasions where there are topics. Take, take the topic of food. Food law, food safety, food health, hugely important, hugely timely. We know that law is a teeny part of it. And to think about what are the contributions that other parts of the university can make to that. Or you talked about climate. Uh, we have many people on our campus interested in animals and animal welfare. Uh, there are. Mm-hmm. People in the rest of the university interested right. in that. Are there ways that we can actually just make it possible for people to easily come together? Right. Um, January.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because um, I mean, one example we've had this religious and practice of peace initiative going for the last two years at the Divinity School, and this is well known to all of you that um, in part of the world where um, uh, economic prosperity is higher. Um, civil conflicts, generally speaking, are lower. Um, um, so, um, when we try and think in our RPP, religions of the practice of peace, we're trying to look at the um, faith funda- foundations and spiritual foundations for peace building. We're driven back again and again to other frameworks of understanding, economic understandings, or legal understandings. You know, to what extent is it possible through things like the International Criminal Court or through legal devices, in you know, our great uh, friend um, uh, who wants to make war a war crime, uh, Ben Ferenc. Um, and um, the, so, what we found, are, and the same with education provision, that when we come up against these big questions that we try to get at through religious foundations, we're driven back in other categories a lot, but then sometimes also lack the expertise in a different direction about how to think about these things and can often then have very defensive positions about law or laws and you know that which is run by people in power or business prosperity is that which is generated for the few and not the many or like these kind of cliches really that, that, that defy you know a deeper analysis. So I guess you know what I struggle with a little bit is, you know, for all the, the I think the the really great intentions of one Harvard, which I think is a wonderful ideal, and I think we've made some real headway towards that. And, but, um, but I do think we have a long way to go of, of how to build across that isn't, uh, and the schedule's a problem. And you, know, you folks, have, like we have, have got priorities. You know, you've got to train teachers in a year, or, or lawyers in three years, or business people. So you need a, you know, people need to understand accounting methods and marketing. They need to understand you know, that all the different um, uh, forms of law, from corporate to private, and so on. So that's a challenge. You know, we all are you know, operating away at our, our, our very specific um, uh, curricular needs. So how to do that, that isn't just things like, I mean, you know, and some of these questions are, are, well, do we need more joint degrees, or do we want more? And that's one way of attacking these questions. But there must be other ways of doing it that can get to the same destination without having a, another big structure piled on top of it.
2: Just uh, sorry, but Kurt Vonnegut, the great novelist, in one of his novels, suggests that everyone is born with um, a middle name that randomly assigns them to a family. And what if everybody at Harvard was randomly given a middle name that connected them to people in the other schools and had enough time to get <laughs> together and, yeah, and talk yeah. together?
0: Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting?
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, or just, uh, or just given a random number when you come to Harvard between 1 and 11. Um, and, that, uh, and that you had to gather periodically with people in your number group. Um, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. So long as all the souls was
1: rigged, and they all came here. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, this is not nearly as creative a, a suggestion. I, I think of have two ways. One is, um, Martha's right that the scheduling is difficult. And, and you're right that everyone is compressed for time. Um, so thinking about workshops that each school could offer that would be relevant to students in another school so that there was an effort to reciprocate um, would be one way I think to cross the boundaries yeah, yeah. In, a very, in a very discreet and, and manageable way yeah, yeah. so religious literacy for teachers would be a great wow. workshop that yeah. um, your faculty could could put on. Yeah. Um, the other way is, and you, you adverted to this, collaborating around problems in the world. Uh, I've become a, a big believer that that is the way to draw faculty together. That yeah, is, you yeah. identify something in the world that you actually want to address right. and you're serious about addressing it. Yeah. Um, in order to do that, you'll find often that the expertise doesn't reside in a single department or a single school. Yeah, yeah. You, need, you need leadership within that group. It can't be deans. Um, yeah. simply commanding faculty oh, to, to work on this. So you need, it needs to be a bit organic. Yeah. But if the, if the problem is compelling enough and, the, and there are resources and structures in place to allow for the collaboration. So I think, for example, of this um, idea a colleague of mine is pursuing about how to bring religious and education leaders together in communities to support the development of mm-hmm. kids. That would be, it seems to me, an, an ideal opportunity to bring together faculty from across a number of schools, including the yeah, it would
0: actually be wonderful to have an opportunity to think more deeply about ways of, because these are great, really creative suggestions, I think. Um, I mean, I was surprised at you saying, Jim, that, you know, that in your school, the dean can't command the faculty to do what he wants. But <laughs> I, it's I, very I, different I, here. I, you know? I misspoke, if that, that's right. <laughs> that, that might have been wishful to say. <laughs> um, um, I think, is our time almost up? We've got a few more minutes. Um, um,
3: So So, can I take a stab at this last one? Uh, You know, I've been so struck by the, in some ways, what the iLab has generated, right? It it, it shows me that the student energy to connect across, I mean, the faculty may be the last people that we find easy ways to connect, but I think the students have an extraordinary opportunity to connect. And we created this space, which was mm-hmm. you know, on kind of the remote edge of, mm-hmm. of of Harvard for the vast majority of our students. Mm-hmm. When we first built it, people said, you know, other than business school students, nobody will even find it. Uh, now business school students are, at most, 30% of the users of the iLab. We have Divinity School students there. We have education school students there, law school students yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But it met a particular impulse that students had. So, yeah, it, yeah. Found an opportunity for people who are naturally entrepreneurial or may have had even a hint of that in their life to say, is this a way to explore and give voice to this natural? So I think we need to find ways in which we can tap into the natural energies and the natural desires our students might have and pick those areas where there may be some density of that interest, where they might connect with each other and then create the space and some resources for them to do that. It's not obvious what all those spaces are. Entrepreneurship ended up being one, so I'm not saying that I can easily come up with a list of 10 other such things on which people might find those connections. We're trying to do it now with the arts, and it will be interesting to see how that project Mm -hmm. unfolds, but I think it's it's worth thinking about where might students have a natural energy and desire to connect with each other in something that feels purposeful to them or meaningful to them. Yeah, yeah. And then can we create those one university spaces where that might occur in a productive way? So that's just another yeah. idea. And, uh, because I do think that the potential in this university is large, but the constraints on how to do it based on schedule, yeah. time, each one of us feeling that if I have them for my one precious year or two yeah, precious yeah. years, I've got to give them 240 pounds of stuff to carry in a 200 pound bag. Uh, Because our faculties want to, you know, give them more and more and more of their own Mm. material. So we squeeze out all the space to do other things in in, in any case. So that to me feels like another thing that at least uh, this iLab experience has opened my eye to, which is that uh, the students have more desire to connect with each other. And as you were saying, even these religious clubs and how they're connecting with each other seems to suggest to me that uh, there's something about the energy of students that we should unleash in ways that's not just the curriculum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we should take advantage of being a residential community and find ways of connecting them in in,
2: in these other ways. I'll never forget the first advisory group that you convened for the Innovation Lab. And the first request the students had was to stay open later than 2 a.m.
3: Yeah. (laughs) It was a big decision that we as deans (laughs) had to make, which is, you know, we had responsibilities about safety and could we do it and how might we do it. I mean, it took a big deal to make it more... Twenty-four-seven, mm-hmm. which it now is. But it was a complicated decision because shuttles stopped running and you know we're again as I said it's a remote edge of campus, you had safety and security concerns. Mm-hmm. But that's when they want to work, right? Because they can't work during yeah. the day. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And it
2: was a sign of their desire. But so it comes back to time and space. Kant had something going for it.
1: Yeah. But I also do think that it's also a commonality of purpose.
3: I mean yes. what draws yes. students to connect and students from different schools Absolutely. is that they share a similar goal. Yeah, that's that you do think you have to find those yes. intersections exactly. where commonality of purpose oh. is strong and powerful and drives you enough to be able to take on that extra cost of doing things. To connect, which at Harvard otherwise are not easy. Right.
2: Well, again, you know, when we have conferences on food, we have people from all over the university, yeah. Yeah. and our work on immigration, refugee rights, all over the university. I don't think we have any shortage.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
2: it is about creating the ways for Spaces, people to yeah. connect.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those are actually great examples, I think, of, of. I mean, the iLab and, and you know what you're saying around food, or, um. I mean, so we have a, a a center for the study of world religions right over here which has um, in many ways uh, accomplished some of this but you know I I think we would all uh, recognize that that we have a ways to go in this but um, uh, uh, because again I think what you've pointed out what we found out when we we've put up an exhibition of the our first 200 years of our school and what we've discovered from that exhibit um, is that the real Important innovations in our school have been student-driven, more than either dean or faculty-driven. So it's how to. Um, so what was really interesting about your answers was really that I think you know how to empower our students and provide the spaces and um, and the opportunities uh, which I think they will seize and and you know to hear from them about you know the things they're interested in. I, I do think that's a. I mean, rather than you know a couple of deans getting together and put putting together, oh, here's a new joint degree program or, or whatever, because that's a way we almost automatically think. That's our go-to. Um, uh, um, so I, I, those are in- interesting thoughts. Are there any final things you wish you'd said or didn't say before, um, before we give you your tickets to the <laughs> Pearly Gate? Um, 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 uh,
2: Can I just say thanks for the privilege of this conversation? It's just yeah. really uh, very valuable. Yeah.
0: So I just want to thank. Um, you
1: can see oh, why can I say one more thing. Yeah, go I, for it. I, I just want to say it is, a, it is a genuine delight and honor to serve with you and Martha and Nithin on Sit the down. Council of Deans. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. you are an exemplary leader. Oh, thank you. Um,
0: yeah, so we, you can see why it is a fun gathering. <laughs> uh, we,
3: um, we all uh, love him. That's why it's a fun gathering. No, <laughs>